May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And they didn't like it. Not one bit. Jesus says the same to us this morning. And the world has not changed its mind about Jesus claiming to be the bread of life. Even some of those who had been following Jesus would later on in chapter 6 say, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Why such controversy? Well, the same reason why it was controversial then is why it's controversial now. Jesus is saying that, it, that he is necessary for survival. You can't live without him. Bread then, as it is now, is central to the diet. Even in the midst of gluten intolerance and the Atkins diet, all over the world people rely on bread to live. We pray in the Lord's Prayer that God would give us this day our daily bread. We may think that many things are essential to life. Intellectual growth, physical conditioning, work. But if you don't eat, these things become impossible. Indeed, everything in life is is secondary to nourishment. We live in a hungry and thirsty world. We all hunger and we all thirst and we are all willing to try just about anything to satisfy and quench our longings. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory. We are in constant search for rest and security, but as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Jesus Christ. When those listening to Jesus heard this message, they began to murmur, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? The doctrine is disbelieved, but the attack is against the person. Here is Jesus, whose miraculous birth they had forgotten about, whose life had been sinless, and yet they tried to deflect his message by saying, Who are you to make such exclusive claims? Even today, those of us who know the satisfaction of the bread of life, that which it brings, are asked by our family and friends, how can you believe such things? The doctrine is surely offensive, and yet their attack is personal. They say, I remember what you were like in college. I know what your business practices used to be. It's impossible for human beings to not relate to one another based upon their pasts. The past, for all of us, is very hard, if not impossible, to run from in our world. But here, in Jesus' response to the Pharisees, he doesn't respond to their personal attacks, but simply reaffirms the doctrine that he is necessary for survival that he is necessary for life. Because Jesus doesn't relate to you based upon your past. In him, he counts nothing you did against 
yourself, nor does he count anything that you did in your favor. We are all in the same boat. He offers you a new life, a restart. And such a wondrous thing the world cannot fathom. In Jesus, your past history does not define who you are. And that rattles people. I had a friend in high school who was known as a real pain in the neck. And everyone thought he was annoying because he was. And years after college, he moved to the Pacific Northwest and he in a phone conversation said to me, Andrew, I wish that people would know me for who I am now and not for what I was because I think that I'm different now. He didn't like who he was and so he set out to change himself, to not be identified with his past. He didn't succeed, but um, regardless, uh, none of us wants to be identified with our past. And Jesus doesn't identify us with our past. The bread of life, who is Jesus Christ, not only satisfies your deepest need, gives you new life, forgives you of your sins, past, present, and future, but he will also never let you go. Jesus responds to this murmuring by telling his listeners, No one can come to the Father, come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Upon hearing this initially, we are repulsed by Jesus' words, as his listeners were in Capernaum years ago. The word that Jesus uses to describe the drawing of the individual by the Father denotes resistance. The same word that Jesus used here is the same word that is used in the drawing of a heavily laden net of fish onto the shore in John chapter 21. It is the word used of Paul and Silas being dragged before the civil authorities in Philippi. It is used when Peter drew his sword in Gethsemane before he cut off the ear of Malchus. Everywhere in the New Testament that this verb is used... It is used to denote resistance. And there is resistance to Jesus' message of forgiveness, of new life, of a new start. I was told by a friend of a Thanksgiving dinner uh, not too long ago, last fall, where one of their parents was staying with them. And they're grown adults with children. And they were talking about matters of faith, which often come up toward the end of dinner when some of the people have strayed away from the table. And the parent finally, in frustration, threw up their hands and said, Now let me get this straight. What you believe about Christianity is that no matter what you've done or what you do, you will be forgiven? And they said, Yeah, that's about it. That's right. And they said, well, if that's what it's about, then no thank you. Not only do we fall short of the glory of God, not only are we all sinners, but in fact, when God the Father begins to draw us, our natural response is resistance. Now you would think, well, logically, who wouldn't want the forgiveness of their sins? Who wouldn't want to be made right with God. But there is still a great part of us that does want to be judged by our past. We do want our merits weighed. 
There is not one example in the New Testament of the use of this verb to draw where the resistance is successful. Always the drawing power of God is triumphant. This means that if you are in Christ, God has a hold on you and he's never ever going to let you go in spite of your greatest resistance. And Jesus does not leave his listeners in ignorance as to how to partake of this bread. He says, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus here in very clear terms lays out the gospel message that God himself took on flesh and came into the earth and dwelt among us and was crucified and died that we might live. Plain and simple, there it is before us. All we have to do is partake. And when the Father draws you, there's nothing that you can do to resist it. Many years ago, a Scotsman purchased a passage for a transatlantic voyage on a great ocean liner bound for America. He did not have much money, and so he decided to save on food by stocking up on crackers, cheese, and fruit before his departure. And the ship sailed, and he began to eat his Spartan meals. This went fairly well for the first four or five days, but as the ship drew closer to New York, the crackers became increasingly stale, the cheese became moldy, and the fruit spoiled. Finally, there was nothing left that was fit for him to eat, and so the Scotsman decided that he would go to the dining room and have one last good meal before the liner docked in Manhattan, and he went ashore. Imagine his surprise to discover that nothing in the dining room cost anything, and that all that he could ever have eaten had already been included in the price of his ticket before he left the British Isles. This is the way that many in our world act toward the bread of life that is offered to us without price in the person of Jesus Christ. A bounteous feast set before you and me that we would just come and dine. This morning, do you long to have your hunger assuaged and your thirst quenched? Do you long to have your life transformed by the unconditional forgiveness of your sins? Do you long to be given a new life, a new start, to be held fast in the strong grip of God's grace? Feed on Jesus this morning. Believe on Him and live the bread of life broken for us. Amen.